Let's turn to the scriptures. Did anybody look over at the other page and go, oh no, that's a lot of Bible text. Anybody think that? Anybody want to fess up to that? Um, Let's take a look here at Mark chapter 13. I'm not sure how long we'll stay over Mark 13. I, I have budgeted three weeks on it, but I don't know if we'll do that or not. Mark chapter 13. Oh, we're in for a weird one today, guys. Um, so one of the themes I've been talking a lot about is us. Yeah, right here. Uh, one of the things I've, themes I've been talking about is the proper offense. Um, I am determined that uh, more and more as time goes on. All right, when I first got here to, to San Francisco on our website, I was extraordinarily careful to, to not say things that would offend people. And I did that, I think, for a good reason, to come in wise, to just be wise about who we are. I don't know San Francisco. I don't know what this milieu is. I don't know what this situation is or its context. And as we've been here now, for the, as I kind of feel like I'm learning how to preach or teach here, it has become more and more clear to me that that was a mistake. Well, I mean, it was the right thing to do at the time. But I think that there's a need in this generation to move towards what offends people. Not in an offensive way necessarily, but to move towards the, the, some of the Christian idiom, some of the Christian imagery, some of the things about Jesus that we kind of, we might want to dance around a little bit with our culture and our generation. And I, I think that dance of, of accommodation sometimes can be a very good thing. Like I want to connect with people that are very different than me. But sometimes, maybe a lot of times we will make choices about what we teach about and preach about and how we teach and preach about it that don't have anything to do with whether we reach people, but that's how we protect ourselves, right? One of the great crimes of being a preacher is you want people to like you. Did you catch that? You know, I want people to like me. So far, I've been extremely, extremely bad at that. Anybody, any takers on that? Just not to thank you, Shadow. Yeah, it's never, it never worked. I've never been able to get you to like me, even though I want to. I, I, don't you love that Jesus doesn't seem to care whether you like him? He doesn't seem to care at all. All right, uh, Mark 13. Uh, and that's, we're going to see this. Uh, Jesus does not care if you like him. And uh, Jesus is, at this point in time, Mark 13 is happening just just a few days before the cross. So as we look at this discourse, and as we this whole sermon, uh, and the whole sermon is predicated on an observation by his disciples about how beautiful the temple is. And then Jesus goes over to Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives faces Jerusalem. You can see Jerusalem. And uh, by the way, the temple, parts of the temple had golden plates. I mean, it would glisten in the sun. The descriptions from Josephus, one of the ancient historians we have of the ancient world, describes something stupendous. It glistened in the distance, shining with beauty. Christ says it's going to be destroyed. Now there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that. Because this is A.D. 30. And A.D. 70, that is exactly what's going to happen. The temple is going to be demolished. There's going to be a siege. It's going to be a disaster. It's going to be a terrible time. The Roman Empire is finally going to get fed up with Jewish revolt, and it's going to come crashing down around their ears. 
You're, we're going to read here, this is AD 33, actually, when the sermon's happening, right? Well, I guess AD 33 right here. And so um, it's happening right here. So what does this do that Christ describes a destruction that happens 37 years later? What do you think most people do with this text? Right. This text must have been written in A.D. 70 plus. There's no way. Come on. You know, are you gullible? Would you guys buy this? I do. All right, so the idea is that there's a predictive work of here, Christ, and this is very different than the way we've been listening to Jesus so far. His tone changes. And he begins to assume the mantle of a prophetic voice predicting the future and his advent as the divine warrior. And Christ, in a sense, changes. And this is why a lot of people try to say, who are, who are fond of dismantling the scriptures and rejecting their truth, rejecting their authority, they want to say that, that all this, that was made up afterwards. And, uh, and they don't see the greatness of Christ. And they don't like it the divine warrior image. And they don't like it, and, and it just starts grating. Christianity starts, and this, this, this faith that we have starts demonstrating itself to have, uh, to be an unembarrassed supernaturalism, right? Predicts the future, knows what's going to happen. Christ is going to talk about that. So we're going to read this together. It's a little, it's not that hard to read. I think you'll actually kind of enjoy it. It's kind of, it's got a, it's got a lot of, uh, a lot of detail in it. Uh, let's first read this. Uh, we're going to read it. We're going to read this responsibly from Mark 4, verse 9. And then we're going to, well, I'm going to read the text, and we're going to pray afterwards briefly for wisdom with it. How does Christ tell us we should listen to his word? If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Mark 13. This is the last great sermon here in the book of Mark. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? <laughs> there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, this is a little time later, this really stuck with him. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Oh, many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, 
but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and a father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now. And never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, from, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch comes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. One more paragraph here. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Lest he come and find, suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. This is such a big text, Father. I pray for wisdom, teaching about it and talking about it. But I need a wisdom that comes not from my own mind or heart or understanding. I crave wisdom that comes directly from you. I pray for the direct operation of the Holy Spirit now. Not only on me, but on every one of us with full measure. Because if we don't have that, this is just going to make, not make any sense. I pray, uh, Father, I pray for that now to equip me. Forgive the sins of the one who speaks for their many. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking to I'm looking to offend. Yeah, why not? Maybe I've gotten a little tired of political correctness. I don't know what it is, but I'm almost sure this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, it's just like this sudden clarity. 
Let's bring on the offense. And what is Christ and how does he talk? He is the divine warrior. In this moment, in this passage, he comes with all this perfect. And did you catch it? Did you notice it? Look, so the Old Testament, a lot of, of our Bible and our spiritual texts are about prophets declaring, thus saith the Lord. You ever heard that expression, thus saith the Lord? It's like, a, it's like a hammer coming down. Thus saith the Lord. God has spoken. I'm speaking for him. I could say that today, right? But you know what I can't say? And I won't say? And nobody else in the Bible ever says? Look at verse 31. It's the last line of the text on the first page. Heaven and earth shall pass away. My words shall never pass away. Again, this is something I want you to see because I think it's almost invisible to us at times. And that is the stunning, absurd grandeur of Jesus Christ. I mean, do you catch it? I mean, I think it's like, look, honestly, if he's not God, he, deserve, he belongs in a loony bin. Do you get that? He should be locked up. People don't talk that. Prophets never said that. They said, I speak for somebody else. What does God, what does God say? What is, I mean, what does Jesus say? I speak for myself. <laughs> it's like every prophet who ever came and ever had anything to say about God, Jesus says, you know what? I am outclassing all of them. And I'm going to speak as one who speaks like a God. And what I speak will last greater than Everest and greater than the, longer than the sun. Okay, look, honestly, guys, this is a pretty... This is a megalomaniac kind of language, isn't it? Unless it's true. This would be self-deception unless it's real. And we see Christ is aware in all of time, whether it's the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 or the end of time, he is coming. And we, it's almost like we become so accustomed to these words and the way he talks that we don't see his grandeur. It's not a, a perceptible to us. He is saying his words are greater than the temple. Now, this is, by the way, what he says casually about the temple being destroyed is going to be the number one evidence against him to kill him. Just what he says here. As he proclaims, the way he announces himself as prophet, and then he describes himself in this text as a warrior to come. You notice the tone's completely changed? Everything seems to have dramatically changed in this text, and that has led many, uh, many critics to want to point out this text is not authentic. They are wrong. And they're wrong because they, have no, they don't know either the power of God or his word. But I want to, I, we have some challenges today about how to understand this text and what to do with it. And the first challenge is to understand why this exists as a prophetic utterance. And so the first thing is, what does this mean as a piece of prophecy about, about, about uh, the, the end times? Now, uh, so the, the prophetic, I'm going to try to give you a model for understanding it. It's a little bit challenging, but I, don't, I think you'll get it. So the prophet always stands in his time, in his milieu, in his context, uh, in space and time. His, his context. And that's, he speaks directly to it. He announces God's word directly to the people that are around him. But one of the things the prophet does, because God is an eternal God, I want you to picture the Holy Spirit coming down here. God is an eternal God. 
When he, when he is revealing his plans, some, what happens is it not only speaks to this time, it speaks to a future time. And then sometimes it'll speak to where we are right now. That's why we're talking about it and pre preaching on it. And then finally, it'll talk about the end. And it will do all of these things, all of these things, its present, his present circumstance, his, the immediate future, our circumstance, and the end at the same time. <laughs> like, that's a little weird, isn't it? Like, this is, it's this weird, you look at a night sky, you can't tell which star is closer and which one's further, you can't. Uh, it's fun, fun to look at a constellation. I was really fascinated by constellations. And one of my favorites is Orion. It's easy to find Orion, right? And it's such a beautiful collection of stars. It looks like a warrior. And, and it, you can, it's easy to find. But I remember, even as a kid, being disturbed by the fact that all those stars were actually different distances away. And even though they appear to me as having, having one image, if I, were to, if I were on Earth, if I were in another, another solar system, if I were, had any different perspective, I would never see Orion, right? I would never see it at all because it would, it would change, it would move. And so what's happening, the prophet speaks and, and Christ starts unloading all of this, this prophetic that things are going to get bad. If we could sum up this whole passage, uh, things are going to going uh, are get are going to get bad. I want to say going are going to get bad. Do you think that's a fair summation of the text? Things are going to get bad, and if we want to say what the prophecy was, things are going to get bad and then get worse. <laughs> things are going to get bad and then get worse. And he gives it from this poetic, from this prophetic perspective, where time seems to. Uh, whether it's immediate in AD 33 or if it's AD 70 or if it's 2017 or some point in the future, that, that, we, that it's all true about all those times. And it winds up having abiding truth for us today. But it can make it a little challenging to read, can't it? One of the challenges of this text is the way he says uh, have, uh, all these things will happen before this generation's over, Right? And what Christ, his perspective is eternal. And so as eternal, as eternal perspective, time shrinks. You see? Time shrinks. And even a thousand years looks like what? The eternity. Just a little blip. And so the way that, um, the way that uh, the pro prophetic descriptions foreshortens thousands of years of history is because it's supposed to give you an eternal perspective. Get it? Why is that going to be important? Because things are going to get bad and then get worse. And you and I need to know how to handle it. It's a, it's a very tender thing Jesus is doing here, isn't it? It's a tender, considerate thing. He even says in the text, this is why I'm telling you. So you can start tracking and seeing and understanding your context. This is why I'm telling you, so you'll be ready. This is why I'm telling you, so you can be wise. Let's, uh, let's, let, if we look at the text, we'll see a little bit more detail of what I'm talking about. What happens here? In verse, in the, in the, we'll divide it up into little paragraphs, make it very easy to follow. So the first two paragraphs are introductory. Christ makes a, a, very, a rather provocative statement about what's going to happen to the temple. 
people overhear it, it becomes something he's accused of later in trial. Based on the Mount of Olives, looking at the shiny temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew come and ask him. Then you have the long discourse. See that no one leads you astray is how he starts. By the way, uh, I didn't count them all up, but there's so many imperatives here. See that no one leads you astray, and then another, we'll see a bunch of them as they come. Be on your guard is one of, the, one of the big ones. Stay awake. I don't know if you noticed that at the end. There's a lot of stay awake language, which is waiting language and awareness. And he begins in, in, in a fairly ordinary sense. I would say this first paragraph, verses 5 through 8, you would say is introductory. Everything, everything is going, he's kind of setting up his claim about what's going to happen. Then he gets more specific. And by the way, the, this paragraph being in verse 9 through verse 13 is the apostles' experience. It's actually their experience. If, get, if we read the book of Acts, you'll start to see people knew this. This was actually happening to them. But if you go a little further, then into the next paragraph, verses 14, Christ starts moving further through history. There's an immediate kind of application, but in a, in a fairly common sense way, he starts moving forward. And in fact, he begins to describe the destruction of the temple. Uh, the abomination of desolation is a reference back to Daniel. So uh, what Christ does, is, by the way, and very beautifully, as he looks forward, he also tracks back to Daniel, the great prophet of the Old Testament. And what's he saying? This eternal perspective is, is consistent. This eternal perspective that Daniel foresaw when Daniel was predicting Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes is a scoundrel who sacrifices a pig in the temple in about uh, 400, 300, and 300 BC, 200s and 300s BC. That's where he gives the Maccabees and all that stuff. So Daniel uses this language of the abomination that causes desolation. And you notice there's a little parenthetical statement, let the reader understand. Very unusual in Mark to do that. He always does it a couple other times. Okay, so then he describes um, uh, all of this. And then look at verse 20, though. Uh, verse 19. We know it was really bad. Uh, but their days will be such tribulation as not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. So what do you do? This is something classic with, with prophecy. The words get too big. The descriptions get hyperbolic, you might say, right? Hyperbolic. What's hyper, what means by hyperbolic? Just to, to overstate your case. Jesus is exaggerating. I don't think so. I don't think that's what's going on. As the language gets big, it's beginning to start talking about the end as it's talking about AD 70. So the destruction of the temple is an event in AD 70, but that as well as some suffering you and I are experiencing, or the suffering we're having in this generation, or the Holocaust uh, of, of, of the Second World War, that, that each one, in a sense, becomes a resurgence, a re-picturing, um, a reimagining of what Christ is predicting here. It's happening over and over and over again. Until what happens finally? It gets so bad... He begins to describe a time when even Christians would, if possible, the elect. Look at verse 22. The chosen. If it was possible, they could be out astray. They would. But then they look at the, again the command. Be on guard. I have told you all this beforehand. Now, what's the next paragraph? The disintegration of the physical world. And, and, and then the, uh, the gathering together of all those who are believers. When did that happen? Well, you see, this is interesting. When was the sun darkened and the moon darkened? Does anybody remember? 
when that happens in the Bible? Anybody? When Christ is dying on the cross, and he dies. So it happens immediately. It happens a week, within the week. The sun is darkened, the moon's darkened, and the stars are darkened. But then that language gets bigger, doesn't it? Then the language starts describing the collecting of all of God's people from all over the world. So at the same time, I know my, my drawing here it just gets really frustrating, but, but it, it's, 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 it's the way I, it's, this is the way I think. Isn't it awful? This is the, actually the way my mind operates. Um, you should see me write up a job description. Uh, uh, so he's, he's referring to his, the cross, 80, and then 80, 70, and then he's referring to the end. The end of all things. The apocalypse. And so Christ gets really apocalyptic as he's talking not only about what he does at the cross as the son, but what he's going to do later. And then, you know, echoes, we, echoes start banging around. Who here and all of us have experienced like a, a sense of the destruction of nature? Right now we're experiencing it, right? Nature's being destroyed around us. Who, who, how many of us are suffering? How, how many, what about our political climate? What's going on right now with ISIS? What's happening? Oh, Christ, almost, almost incidentally, as it were, in the, as he talks about himself, AD 70, and the end, he's also talking about Evie's life <laughs> and my life and us as a church here in San Francisco. This is your, this is Prophecy 101. Are you guys confused? Here you get it. It's a little confusing. Uh, we don't, we are very linear people in the West, especially in America. We are very linear. We see we, A is equal to A, B is equal to B. You know, we, we tend to think very, very orderly. And this, this thinking is not like that. This thinking is much more global and eternal. This thinking is saying that the parts and pieces of your life are echoes of eternal plans. <laughs> that the, your suffering, Sarah, is an echo of an eternal plan. And the way, don't be, and, and, and we're supposed to get this. Christ, ha, and, all right, so a lot of people have condemned the validity of this text because doesn't it sound like it's about to happen? Like it's just about to happen? That's the way the New Testament talks. It's like, it's like the, it's just about to happen. And that was 2,000 years ago. That was 2,000 years ago. But if we look with an eternal perspective now, we realize that for God, these things are immediate all the time for him. And he's sharing his perspective with us. So his rescue of the cross, when he dies for sinners, that's what we believe happens at the cross. Christ dies, substitutionary atonement. He dies to, for my sin and rises from death. Do you know what happens there? He gathers his chosen forever right there. If you know him, I have to say today, you were to put your trust in Christ. You know what just happened in this moment in this room? A fulfillment of prophecy. And you'd be gathered in. You see? The gathering's happening right now. The ga we are enacting all of this prophecy here in San Francisco now. It gives me chills. gives me chills. That's why Christ's saving work, this eternal perspective, it's always bringing God's power and presence and love and forgiveness now. Because you know what? Eternity is not worth a whole lot if it doesn't do something for me right now. It's a nice buy and buy idea. 
Christ doesn't want eternity to be a by and by. He doesn't want forgiveness. He doesn't want faith. He doesn't want his plans, his kingship. His work is the divine warrior, the son of man coming in the clouds. He doesn't want that <coughs> to sit as a mere abstraction. But he wants you to know he has bought, he has purchased, he is king. And his words never pass away. Like there's an eternity to his work and his words and his love and his presence that just never goes away. He never stops. doesn't go away. And so this text is brilliantly positioned as Christ begins to prophetically predict what's going to happen after his resurrection from the dead. What's the point now for us? So first, things are going to get bad and then get worse. What's point number two? Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater as the Son of Man, this divine warrior, he brings eternity to us now. What are we supposed to do? Well, this is where it gets kind of interesting. What are we supposed to do with all this? Um, I like what you said earlier, Jessica, about being a planner. Being a planner and how ambiguity drives you crazy. Right? How many of you are planners and ambiguity drives you crazy? There you go, Katie. I'm going see some of those people who... Who are, who are such death to all of us who are not like that. <laughs> What's out the gate? God uh, is telling us to hold our plans with what? Open hands. You get this? That's really a lot of this text is saying. A lot of us have plans about where we're going to retire, what we're going to do, and how we're going to live, and what the world's going to be like. And if anything we learned... Anything we learned in the last election cycle, none of us are able to predict the future, right? None of us have any idea from one moment to the next what's really going to happen. How many of you are so surprised at the way life has turned out for you? I know I am. What the heck? I did not write the story I am living right now. Trust me. I would have written it better. I would be the hero. I'd be better looking. I would... There's a wonderful way in which Christ dismantles it. And he says it again and again. Be on guard. Stay awake. Pay attention. And watch. Because, in a sense, all of your plans are, are held with open hands. I and the Lord, my words never pass away. What do your words and plans do? They pass away as easily as the morning do. When your hopes are in your plans... I want you to hear the great planner, the divine warrior, come in, Sid, and just break them to pieces at times. Praise him. You are not the author of your script. Somebody was telling, somebody used this illustration recently. It really was powerful for me. Um, <laughs> there's no point at which Hamlet, was, was that you, uh, McLaren? It was great. There's no place, place in which Hamlet, one of the characters of Shakespeare, can ever turn around and like talk to Shakespeare unless Shakespeare writes it, right? <laughs> Hamlet never is in control of his life and the destruction that's there. And uh, what Christ is saying is, I want Christ to say things about, I want Christ scripting in his words. I want, if he says, Nellie, I love you and you will be my daughter forever, that will never pass away. What's he saying about us and writing about us in his plans? Doesn't this make you want to run to him and say, write me in? <laughs> write me in. 
These stories, these descriptions are scary. You know what we have to ask God to do? To write us into his words because they never pass away. And he wrote words of love about us. Praise him. Planners need to repent. There I said it. I said it. Second, second, second uh, um, application. Perspective. There's perspective all over this text. That's what all the commands are about. Be on your guard, stay awake, keep vigilant, watch, pay attention, look. What is this perspective supposed to be? Um, Think about it. Think about this. Uh, Fake news is the new expression today, right? Fake news. Fake news. I don't know. When I read about fake news, I know there's a part of me that kind of like was really alarmed by it. It's like, you know, and, and you hear people like, the way they're proving that what they say is true is by repeating it more loudly. Has anybody noticed this lately? <laughs> like, if I say it loudly enough, it must be true. Is anybody? That's how we fought when we were kids, right? I, if I outshot you, I win. Right? It doesn't matter what's true. You know what I love? Jesus' perspective. Fake news is nothing new. There's fake news. There's fake Jesus. There's fake, there's fake everything. <laughs> And you and I can often get really dismayed, can't we? By, by political climate, or by news or rumors of wars, by, uh, by, by calamity, or by political disaster. And every one of us, oh, I, I, there's been a moment, I would bet, for every one of us in the last six months, where some, I don't care who you support, there's a part of you that kind of was a little bit sick to your stomach. What's gonna happen? And nobody could control it, nobody could anticipate it, no pundit could predict it. It didn't matter how, many, how, how much information they gathered. And you know what I love is this perspective, this eternal perspective, and what is it? John, Christ is not surprised by fake news or fake Jesuses. And guess what? Neither should you. Why are you so surprised the world's going to hell in a handbasket? Don't be surprised. Be encouraged. You know why? If Christ could predict that, and he's got you locked down in his love. There's a wonderful picture here. The Christians, again and again, the, 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 the commands are, are, are repeated again and again. Stay awake. Uh, be aware. Don't be surprised. Uh, be on guard. I told you all these things beforehand in verse 22. Uh, these are all imperatives to, a, to, to the group. They're, they're in the plural. And Christ is telling them again and again, don't stop. I don't know. Is there a party that just panics? Does anybody else have a panic button in their heart and just makes you sick to your stomach? Um, Christ is giving us the Bible with big friendly letters on it that say, don't panic. Anybody get that? Did anybody get that? that, that uh, it's like yeah, it's galaxy. He said, don't panic. What is the most common imperative all throughout the whole Bible. Do you know what the one command that is the most common in the Bible? This is especially for me, I think. Don't be afraid. He says the Father even pulled back the suffering at the end. Why? For his loving the children he loves. All of space and time, all the way to the apocalypse, is framed around his love for Joe, his love for me, his love for John, Jacob. 
stop being afraid. Stop being a henny penny. Fix your thoughts and your eyes and your imagination and your hope on who? The one whose words will last longer and burn longer than the sun. After Everest has been worn away into the sea, Jesus' words will still stand. What's our final application? Proclamation. There's a lot of things we could do in this text, but this is where I'm going to go settle. There's some other things we need to do here. I think what maybe we'll talk about next time, next week, is how to read the signs of the times. I'm reluctant to do that, but the text does tell us we can do that. I think we should. But um, I want to look at this and look in verse, uh, look on in verse, uh, where is it? Uh, about, what's, where is it? Uh, we don't understand. How stops, uh, cut shut those doors. What does it talk about that everybody, the proclamation is going to happen? About, uh, I was just looking at my outline and realizing I'm running out of time here. Unless you want me to preach for a whole hour on this. Um, and I know that Deepak does not want that. <laughs> but there's the proclamation. Uh, oh, yeah, look at this in verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So, verse 10. So first, I, I've encouraged you to have, uh, for those who are planners, we need to hold, hold our plans of our lives, our whole lives, so in hand. Second, my second instruction to you from the text is what? To get the perspective that will to protect your heart. And don't be dismayed by what's going on at all. It was all predicted. Fake news, fake Jesus, it's everywhere. Sure, expect it. You should be the calmest person at the water cooler at work. You should just sit there and go, yeah, I was actually expecting this. What's the final thing? Proclaim. There's an active work of Jesus in this text. If his words don't pass away, what happens when you speak his words, Evie? <laughs> You're a part. They don't pass away either. <laughs> and the message of love that's going out and the work of love, it, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. There's this relentless agency that we have to continue to bring people to Jesus. Even as everything starts falling apart, don't worry about that. Our Father has to... We are plans. I had plans. So what? So did I. Our Father obviously did not check my planner. It doesn't matter because we have a business, a proclamation business. I love the way he describes it. Even when they're in the synagogues and they're on the stand, don't worry about what you're going to say. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will give you words to say. And I know what you're thinking, Eric. I know exactly what you're thinking in your devious little heart. You're going, that was a, that was a, that was a promise for the disciples, not for me. And no, that's, you're wrong. And I'll tell you why. We, he takes it. The very, how does he end the text? What I say to you, I say to all. He, this is meant to be a text for the saints forever. And what is it? There is a provision in the presence of persecution. There is a provision in the presence of a decimation of our plans. There is a presence, a provision of the Holy Spirit to give Kyle and me and us together words to say when we are afraid we wouldn't know what to say. Praise him. Trust him. His words don't pass away. And as his words have been entrusted of words of life, words of salvation, words about the cross, words of his love, words of his power, words of his coming as the divine warrior, those words, as we become a people of those words, we're bringing eternity all the time into this world. 
of death and destruction and violence and instability. Praise him. Our work as a church, my work as your pastor, is this ongoing proclamation by the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit without fear. We have the perspective. We are unruffled if we trust Christ, right? We are unruffled. We are surrendering our plans to his great work. Let us become a people then of proclamation. Amen? Let's pray. <coughs> Thank you, Jesus. I am... Um, your prophetic words are... They're so strange to us. Like you... You actually, in this little sermon, describe, describe most of the 20th century and most of what's on CNN... It's amazing. I mean, there's people who claim to be you, and then there's wars and rumors of wars, and there's chaos, and, and that's just the beginning. Now, Father, we pray that you teach us how to be wise. Teach us, give us new, clear, uncluttered, unpolluted vision. Forgive us for how when we've been immersed by the political craziness of our days, we've been afraid. We acted like this was what you predicted. And we don't, we don't act like that that's the, what's really happening. So I pray for new confidence and peace. Some of us have really been robbed of peace in this last half a year. I praise you. I praise you. All the words politicians say, your words never pass away. Give us this perspective. Teach us to be unruffled with our kids and at the water cooler and at the coffee shop or wherever we come, wherever we go, online. We are at peace because the divine warrior has spoken. And then finally, make us people who talk by the power of the Holy Spirit about this wonderful Jesus we have. <laughs> Even if they hate us, that doesn't matter. We have words of life. <sighs> I thank you for your word, Father. I, I hope that um, whatever is of you will, will, will work deeply into our hearts to bring obedience and life and faith. Whatever is not will be forgotten. In Jesus' name. All right, so the divine warrior, um, the divine warrior, sets a table before us of blood and guts. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he also took a cup of wine, saying, this is my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Uh, it, it, we have grape juice in the back here for those who prefer it, and wine on either side, and these are gluten-free crackers. Mechanically, what we're going to do at this moment is we're going to come forward and get some bread and wine and go back to our seats and then take everything together. But what I want to do in particular here 
uh, I want to invite you and I want you to hear the invitation. His words never pass away. They are still as valid and true today as they were when he first spoke them. And at this table, he said this was his body and his blood. Christ as the eternal son stands constantly available, constantly present in the eternal, his eternal work, constantly available even thousands of years later now. All these words, heaven and earth shall pass away, but his words will never pass away. And his words are a promise of life and forgiveness for those who believe. So, if you think you're a sinner and you need Jesus, then you get to this table. But I want to set up a gate, a, a warning, a, a fence, a, 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 a barrier. What's the barrier that I need to set up? It's the same one Christ sets up. If you think that you're a good woman, if you think that you're a good man, you are forbidden to come to the table. Christ came to save sinners. That is, his words will never pass away. God rejects the righteous. Jesus rejects those who think they're good. His words will never pass away. It was important for me to tell you that Jesus came to save sinners, and this is the table we cash in. Finally, if you're a skeptic, maybe some of what I was talking about today seems like a fabrication to you as you are analyzing and rejecting or listening to me speak. I invite you to engage into an aggressive dialogue with me then. And I am available for this dialogue. And I invite you to watch and hope someday. Maybe pray. Try praying to God. There are prayers in the back for you. At least what would it hurt? What would it hurt? might hurt a lot, actually. But I'll tell you about that later. So that's how we're going to celebrate now. This is our first application of the sermon, actually. Our first way of taking hold of it. Now, we're going to sing. We're going to say the Nicene Creed. We're going to sing a song. As we sing the song, we'll be coming forward. Many of you know the drill already. And um, as we're coming forward, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Johnny and Rochelle, because you were on point for Sunday school this morning, but for nursery, will you stand in the back by the water cooler and pray for kids? And if you have kids and you want your kids prayed for, will you take them back there to pray? And then everybody else, as they're, as, they're, as they're wanting to come forward, then for uh, communion. And if you just stand in need of prayer anyway, you need healing or some sort of a warm uh, and a friendly uh, time of prayer, somebody just to love on you, then these two will do that too, and they do it very well. So um, let's celebrate the table. Um, let's stand. The Nicene Creed is a little bit long, but I love how... I love it. It's the great decree of the church from the 4th century. You'll hear the majesty of Christ described in it. Uh, so tell me, Christian, brother and sister, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the world before all worlds, God of God, light of life, very God of very God, begotten, not created, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, and was made man, was also crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, 
The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Come. His body is good food. His blood is good drink. Take and eat. 